I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. Welcome back. Yes. To us, I suppose. To us, to you guys. To... Yeah. We released an episode last week and we were gone before that. But That's still. True. <laughs> That's true. But this is the first time I'm seeing you since your trip. Yes. And we haven't been in the studio in a while. Yeah. So mm-hmm. welcome back just to us then. <laughs> I feel like we haven't recorded in so long. I know. Feels like forever. I know. I missed you. I missed you too. And I missed podcast and all of our fiends. All the fiends. Hey, fiends. So I'm so happy to be back in the studio today. As you may have noticed, there was no monologue this week, and that is because this is part two of the Tommy Lynn Sells saga, I suppose. And he was a big baddie that I never even knew existed. Yes, same. That's hard, given that I know a lot of serial killers, and I'm pretty familiar with the story of the Dardeen family murders, which we covered last week. Though I did not really realize the connection to Tommy Lynn Sells because he's a footnote in a lot of them. They're like, oh, it could have been this guy. He said it was him. But in the end, they couldn't convict him and we're done. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize this was like its whole own crazy story, but it was. So I don't want to make everyone wait too long to get to the second part of this one. So let's take care of all of the business really quick. First of all, the holidays are fun, but also monumentally draining when you're forced to take them on as an adult. I miss like just being a kid. Me too. Just shuffle you around to parties and give you presents and that's it. I know. But that's not true when you're a grown-up. But this is true no matter what your winter holiday of choice might be, be it Christmas, Hanukkah, Yule, Kwanzaa, Satanic Pizza Friday, or whatever you guys want to celebrate. Love Pizza Friday. Satanic Pizza Friday. Yeah. The best one. (laughs) (laughs) So if you guys wouldn't mind, we sure could use a little validation, a hill worth dying on, to keep us going through the seasonal rush. Yes. (laughs) And wouldn't you know it, you guys, our very own fiends, can help us out with that. How? But how? You must be asking yourself. (laughs) I am. Every week you do it. I mean, it's been so long. It has been. I forgot. wondering how. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I won't leave you just over there wondering away. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you. Head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. Ratings and reviews equal attention, attention equals support, and support equals more and better content for all of you. But if you just can't wait for more, we would be dead in your life. Well, then lucky you, you don't have to. You can support us over on Patreon. There, for just a few dollars a month, you will gain access to our entire catalog of 30-minute horror movies special minisodes, our weekly after show host mortem, which is available on both video and audio formats. Ooh. Fancy, right? Maybe you want to see your faces. Maybe you don't. Both are okay. For sure. Mm-hmm. Listen while you're shopping in Target or something. You yeah. can. You'll also get a special gift in the mail from us, giveaways, merch deals, opportunities to Zoom with us and other patrons, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. 
And if all of that is a little too much for you, you can simply follow us on social media. We are at WouldBeDeadPod anywhere and everywhere you get your content. You can like our posts, share our posts, like and share our posts. So fun. Yeah, that's the best option. Leave us a comment, post about your favorite episode. Let us know when you're listening. Tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell the person who asks, so are you done all your shopping yet? Every time you talk to them, maybe it will distract them long enough for you to run away. I hate that. I'm never done my shopping. (laughs) No. Is it actual Christmas? No, then I'm not done. Yeah. But what's that person's name? Who does that to you or me or anyone? Feels like a Linda. Linda. She's like, are you done your satanic pizza Friday shopping? And I'm always like, Linda, you know I'm not. You just want to show off that you are and have been for weeks. You know what you do whenever you get asked that question by Linda? What? You just start talking about the podcast and be like, you know what I was just listening to, Linda? Mm -hmm. You know what I think you'd like? Exactly. And that'll derail her and you won't have to answer her question. Exactly. There you go. Then your friends and Linda can become fiends and we can all hang out together. And never talk about if you're done your shopping. Never again. As a team, we can all distract her. Yes. Well done. (laughs) Okay. I know we're all eager to get back to the story, so I think that's all I have for this week. Leslie, do you have anything to add before we begin? So, Holly, I I do not this week. Mm -mm. No, I got nothing. No. Mm. All right, then. Yeah. On with the show. All right. When we left off, it was 2002 and Julie Ray had appeared on 2020 to tell her side of a rather unbelievable and nightmarish story. In 1997, Julie's son, Josh Kirkpatrick, had been senselessly murdered in the middle of the night in her Lawrenceville, Illinois home. So here's a refresher on what happened there. Julie and Josh's dad were divorced and his dad had primary custody because the dad had greater financial stability than Julie, who was a PhD student at the time, did. Julie had Josh on weekends, though, and this was a weekend, so he was staying with her. Around 4 a.m., Julie was awakened by the sound of screaming, so she ran to her son's room, but he wasn't there. Instead, who she found was a masked man standing in the room, who then brushed past her to run out of the house and into the woods. Julie ran after him, and she caught up to him and tried to tackle him, but he backhanded her to the ground. Then, as he was running away, he took off his mask, so Julie was able to briefly see his face before he disappeared into the woods. Julie then ran to the neighbor's house to call 911, and the cops came. They found Josh's lifeless body in his room between the bed and the wall. The cops thought Julie's story was not plausible, and this hunch, coupled with a dot of Josh's blood on Julie's clothing and testimony from her ex-husband that maybe Julie was mad and killed Josh because if she couldn't have him, nobody could, the police came to the decision that Julie had murdered her son and placed her under arrest. Julie is then tried and convicted based on unstable forensic evidence and incomplete investigation and the relentless commitment on the part of the police and prosecution to push the narrative that Julie had committed this crime. So, her story then reaches out through the television airwaves after she is interviewed on 2020, and it goes through the universe and lands into the eyeballs of a woman named Diane Fanning who just happened to also be a true crime writer. I'm remembering all of this Yeah, is it coming back to you? It sure is. Perfect. I remember being really frustrated about this whole thing. Oh, yeah. Diane was just going about her night, watching her crime shows, drinking her tea, knitting, I think, or crocheting. She was doing some crafty thing and relaxing. When a statement that the prosecutor in this program made caught her attention. (laughs) 
I feel like you just described my mother-in-law. I did. Margie, was this you? (laughs) So the prosecutor said, quote, to believe her, meaning Julie, you would have to believe that a person came into the house in the middle of the night with no forced entry, took a steak knife in the darkened kitchen, went down the hallway, turned left, stabbed this little boy to death for absolutely no reason, then struggled with her, didn't kill her, and left. Actually walked away from her in her backyard, pulling off his mask. That's enough for me. Her story didn't make sense. Yeah. But the story made perfect sense to Diane, mainly because she had heard it before. Hmm. From the mouth of a convicted serial killer who committed crimes where he did exactly those things. Okay. The things the prosecutor claimed were super far-fetched and could never, ever happen. Had he done a little digging, this prosecutor would have seen that it was not only possible in that area at that time for something like that to happen, it was, in fact, probable. Mm. But he didn't. The prosecution went on to insist that murderers always brought their own weapon with them. That's such a weird thing to go off of. So, like, that's the hill this guy is dying on, yeah. too. Why? There are so many cases that can disprove that statement. What a bold, like, broad stroke to take. Yeah. Any defense attorney could be like, I have 7,000 cases where murderers took knives or other weapons from the home that the people they killed were in and used them. Mm -hmm. But he insists that that's not how it worked. Julie's son had been murdered with a knife from their own kitchen, and so the killer had to have been from the house. Mm -hmm. Uh, no. Yeah. No. so wild. I mean, we're thinking that, right? Yeah. And Diane was also thinking that because once again, people are killed with weapons from their own homes all the time. Yep. In fact, that serial killer she had just written about had almost exclusively used weapons that he had found in his victims' homes. Didn't really bring his own too often. After all, why would you do that? Everyone has knives, don't they? Yeah. You don't outsource. Why put the extra effort forth to bring... (laughs) why put the effort into bringing a knife you have to find a knife maybe you have to buy a knife you have to make sure you remember the knife you have to hide the knife why would you do all that shit when you could just get one from the kitchen yeah i agree he's just efficient Mm -hmm. it's very efficient Mm -hmm. and if you're going to be one thing be Be efficient. efficient exactly so we should also remember that fabian witherspoon had been attacked with a knife from the apartment that she was in. Remember, she went to her friend's apartment. And she had only lived because of sheer willpower and a ceramic duck. Mm, That's right, the duck. And this is the same guy. Oh. Mm -hmm. Now Diane sat up and started to think. The similarities were just too much. But it did seem crazy to her that the killer she had spent so much time writing the book on could have also committed this crime as well. But she did believe that someone like him had. And we all know that if there's one person in the world that does something, there's probably more. Right. And so she decided to reach directly out to the source because she had had a longstanding correspondence with this serial killer. Mm -hmm. She had gone to the jail to speak to him. They had written letters back and forth. They had talked on the phone. So this was very possible for her. So she got out a pen and paper and wrote a letter to convicted serial killer and death row inmate Tommy Lynn Sells. Okay. Go right to the source. I know. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I can hear you all saying this. He's on death row now? Oh. (laughs) Did we skip some steps? (laughs) Had he committed other crimes? How did he get there? Who brought him down? 
Well, to answer your questions, yes, yes. And one very badass little girl. Yes. Ugh, I love her. Okay. Now, before we get to his final arrest and conviction, it should be noted that Tommy Lynn Sells was in the legal system for other crimes he had committed. He didn't get away with everything. He just got away with murder. Mm. Great. But in between brief incarcerations, he kept an extremely low profile and he moved around all the time. So he never was necessarily in the state where he had a record in when he committed other crimes. And in some um, retellings of this, he's called the coast-to-coast killer because he traveled so much. But I think that makes him look too cool and he would have liked it. So I don't use that. Space Ghost would not appreciate it. Space Ghost says, get the hell out of my territory, Tommy Lynn Sells. (laughs) So as for prior arrests, in 1990, Tommy Lynn stole a truck in Wyoming and was caught and sentenced to 16 months in prison. During this incarceration, he was psychologically evaluated and diagnosed with This is, I don't, all right, I'm just going to say it. Quote, a personality disorder consisting of antisocial, borderline, and schizoid features, substance abuse disorder, specifically the abuse of opioids, amphetamines, and alcohol, bipolar disorder, major depressive disorder, and psychosis. Well, that's a lot. A real holy shit buffet of issues, if you will. Can you remember ever talking about someone that got a diagnosis that was that many things before? No, but I feel like, are they just checking it all off? They're like, it's gotta be at least two of these. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Or but, like, we can't nail down the one because there's like two to three in each box, but then he's missing a few of the other ones. So, maybe. But the majority. The thing that kills me is that a lot of these actual fully developed personality disorders would include the features they feel the need to list. That's what, yeah, that's what I'm saying. why not just say he had this one? Is it just the time, like, when this was I don't know. It's, it's, maybe, it could be. this was the 70s or 80s? (sighs) When he was incarcerated for that? 1990, it says. Oh. Yeah. I mean. Well, we've come a long way in a short period of time. We really have. (laughs) Because, I mean, we will, we can note from previous cases that things like bipolar disorder and uh, antisocial personality disorder can include things like substance abuse and major depression and psychosis Mm -hmm. even. So I'm going to throw this out to our resident psychologist or uh, psychologist. Our mental health. Our mental health worker worker, professional, uh, Andrew Jarima, and ask him, um, what do you you think about this diagnosis? And hopefully we will be... um, having Andrew back on the show very yeah. soon, actually, because mm-hmm. we discussed a very exciting future episode right before I was like, also, I have to leave the country and then it is Christmas. Goodbye. Yeah. So <laughs> we'll get there and it's going to be really good. So anyway, yeah, we can talk about that another time. I just don't understand how he was diagnosed with all of those things at once, but not sent to a psychiatric facility. Well, yeah, I mean, you get the information. It's just what you do with it, you know? They didn't send him to a hospital. They didn't have him evaluated further. They didn't give him a treatment plan. They didn't observe him. They did nothing. I mean, it's like they treated him like a woman. (laughs) 100% they did. That is exactly how women get treated. Don't ask me how I know. (laughs) And I don't know that from a mental health perspective. It's a physical health perspective. Mm -hmm. But still, anyway, you would think that you'd look at this guy and go, I feel like you could do some worse stuff 
in the future. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe your sentence should include a little time with a doctor. Yeah. But it didn't. And at this time, he had not spoken to anyone about his past or his proclivity for violence. He just stole a truck and apparently had a lot going on up in the old noodle. Yeah. So, okay, that happens. Then in 1992, he has the incident with Fabian Witherspoon, who, if you will recall, got him arrested. Or as I like to call it, the ceramic duck affair. Okay. Beautiful. And he served a five-year sentence for this. We talked about it last time. She was able to, you know, identify him. And he, because of the injuries she gave him, he was taken to the hospital Mm -hmm. and the police got him. And while serving his time this go-round, Tommy Lynn was diagnosed with just bipolar disorder. Okay. So I guess the other stuff kind of chilled out a little bit or we just got to the point in modern psychology or arrived at a psychologist with more experience and realized that he probably didn't have every disorder known to Mm -hmm. man, but who knows? Or it's just all under that scope, which then I feel like it should be like bipolar to the fifth degree or something. Yeah, I don't think the like schizoaffective stuff comes with bipolar disorder. But again, I don't think you have to list every single one. I could be wrong. (laughs) It's how he identifies, Holly. It is. And you know what? Fine. So once again, a problem is identified, but not investigated or treated. They're like, well, something's going on. See Mm -hmm. you later. Somehow, while in prison, though, Tommy Lynn managed to score himself a wife. Okay. It happens. It sure does. This woman's name is Nora Price. There isn't a lot of information about her before or afterwards. I assume she's not pleased she was married to a serial killer and wishes for her life to remain private. So we will respect her wishes. I don't know, man. Like, you take your chances with that, though. That's an option. It is. So. It's true. You're going to. She didn't know, though. I mean, I, I guess she probably knew about the Fabian Witherspoon thing, which is But he pretty was married rough. in prison? Yeah. Like, did they ever date outside of prison? I don't know. There, again, there's like nothing yeah. on this woman. Everything I read about Tommy Linzels, um just kind of said, while he was in prison, he married a woman named Nora Price. Okay. Some rabbit holes I jumped down. Some of them I don't. This is yeah. one I chose not to really explore okay. too hard because she doesn't really play in too much. All right, fiends, let's figure this out. Yeah, if you guys have uh, more information on Nora and you want to talk about it, you can hop over to our Facebook group and explore it there. Um, I'm inclined to leave her alone, though. Yeah. In 1997, Tommy Lynn was released from prison and then moved to Tennessee with Nora, where the two worked and lived for just a few months before Tommy Lynn left her to go on more horrible adventures. Okay. So she didn't have a whole lot of time with him. Mm. And more horrible adventures he did have. But now we're going to jump forward to New Year's Eve 1999. And don't worry, I'm going to fill in all of the gaps later. But right now, that is all the information that is on record about Tommy Lincell. So if you are a police officer, this is what you know. Seems like a sketchy guy to have released, but the situation is what it is. Okay, so now it's time to party like it's 1999 because it is. As the millennium approaches, 10-year-old Crystal Searles and her 7-year-old sister Mark, I think it's pronounced Mark, her name is, oh, you can, your Parisian self can tell me, M-A-R-Q-U-E-S. Marquet? If it's Marquet or Marquez, I am so sorry. Anyway, both of the girls are excited to um, have a sleepover at the home of their family friends, the Harrises in Del Rio, Texas. The Searles is, is, that's a hard word to pluralize. The Searles family were moving from their current home in Kansas to Del Rio themselves. And so their mother, Pam, had sent the girls on ahead. Crystal, the oldest, was good friends with 
Katie Harris, who was 13 years old. And despite their age difference, they, um, they were still really close. But they seldom got the chance to do things like have sleepovers and hang out for long periods of time because they lived a long distance apart. And so this was particularly exciting for the two of them. Great. Now, Leslie, you were a tween in the late 90s, right? I, I was. Yeah, yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. so why don't you set the stage for us? What might 1999 have been like for a couple of little girls, little besties, mm-hmm. having a sleepover? Okay, so I was about 12 years old, so this is perfect. Well, Y2K, like the Y2K bug was in everybody's minds. We were wondering if the world was going to end. It felt like as kids, we thought like everything was going to go to shit and it was going to be like a zombie apocalypse. That's like the way that they made it feel. But I guess what was really happening, like for most of the parents in Mm -hmm. the world, they were kind of just like, oh no, we just might not be able to get our money out of the bank. So that was... Yeah, that was like computer might go wonky. Yeah, because it's going to think it's 1900 instead of 2000. And then all the computers were like, we weren't even alive then. And it got real weird. (laughs) It got really weird. um, But everything was fine. A few computers went down, but everything was fine. Like nothing happened. Nothing happened. But I do remember. So this particular one at this age, I feel the same way maybe these girls do where it was like I was young enough to maybe have to stay with my parents on a New Year's Eve thing, Mm -hmm. but also old enough that if I had some friends and we were going to do stuff, like I could possibly go out. And Mm -hmm. this year was one of the first years that I got to like go out with just a friend and not my parents. So it was very exciting. And um, I remember specifically as like, it was like an hour before midnight, I started to feel horribly guilty. I left my parents because I was like, what if if I never see them again? Like that was this feeling that I had. So I still remember that. I remember where I was standing. It was like in Stratford, Connecticut at their like big party. But either way, we had a great time. The world didn't end. And I got to enjoy a sleepover with my bestie, Sarah Savage. Sarah Savage makes so many appearances on this show. I wonder if she listens. (laughs) I hope she does. (laughs) But so, okay. So here are some of the things that we were doing in our tween years. Okay. Maybe some high school years too. Sure, sure, sure. Sleepovers. Right, right, right. So uh, some of the girls like to paint their nails together. Mm -hmm. Uh, We used to play with mom's makeup if we could find it and like break into her room. Right, right. Uh, We played Dream Phone. Dream Phone! Yes. Oh my God. (laughs) I remember that one. (laughs) So you could pretend to have your own phone line because we didn't have cell phones or anything like that Oh my God, I had my own number in my room. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. I did not. But we still, we had the two-way call and like we Uh, had like the other. So yeah, we can be on a different line. The other board game that we played a lot was Electronic Mall Madness. Oh, I had Mall Madness. Mm -hmm. I think it's still in our garage here, actually. Yeah, that was so fun. It was fun. Uh, We would rearrange our Beanie Babies sometimes. So like we'd bring over our favorites or like if one of the girls had a whole bunch of them, we would like play with them and see like what the best order is. Sometimes we do it by colors. Sometimes we do it by year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was a good time. It was a good time. Um, we would also like sit there and go through our books to see how much money they were worth. All right. I never had the book. <laughs> I got really into How'd it. How'd that pan out for you? Um, you have a fortune well, in the bank? I made $15 off of one of the lambs that I paid $5 for. So good job. $10 more than you had when you started. That's right. That's two new Beanie Babies. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well then, win-win. <laughs> uh, we all had our Disney sleeping bags. 
can't say I ever had a Disney <laughs> you one. Did it. Maybe not at that. That was like prime mm, at that. No, I that had age a, like range. a Coleman, like hardcore sleeping bag because I was yeah. a Girl Scout. But yeah. before that, I had a New Kids on the Block sleeping bag. Oh, see, okay. So I think I always had a solid color. I, I believe mine was like this purple color. Uh, and my brother had, I feel like, a navy blue one that I used to steal because I wanted that one over like the purple one because I was such a tomboy. And uh, but I always thought it was cool that the other girls had like the Little Mermaid or the Lion King one. Yeah. OK. Yeah. yeah. And I can hear everyone like sitting there going, I'm sorry, did you say you had a utility grade sleeping bag because you were a Girl Scout? Yes. Yes. I am yeah. surprisingly outdoorsy at times. Yes. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> We all had to do that at one time. Or we another. did. Also, I am not useless in the outdoors. Right. And Girl Scouts is a lot of crafts. It is. <laughs> it is. And the camping you get like is one not... camping a year. I went on a few campings. Did you? Yeah. And none of them were like super rough. Okay. But they were cold. Yeah. They weren't always in the summer. So yeah. anyway, that's continue. when I liked it. <laughs> well, yeah. No snakes. No snakes. All right. Uh, we always watch Spice World. Mm, I was definitely a lot for Spice World. Spice and I was World. into it just for Ellen Cumming. Okay. okay. <laughs> Which reveals a lot about me. It really does. Continue. Um, so Spice World, Clueless was a big movie we yes, would watch. Clueless. And My Girl. Um, also, uh, what was it? Um, Did you have Empire Records in rotation? Empire Records, I of watched course. It but that was on more, repeat. for me, that was more high school, I think. Because of where, we, where I okay. lined, Fair lined up with that. Um, we used to watch, I remember we would watch Titanic too, because a lot of Titanic. What an investment in time that movie was. I know. Well, we would usually skip to like the second half because we just thought it was really funny with the boobs. (laughs) (laughs) Girls need to know their anatomy too. Listen, (laughs) everybody wants to see some boobs. Yeah. (laughs) Um, let's see. We would do a lot of dancing together. So we would put on like Mariah Carey, Backstreet Boys, Britney. Usually there was a discussion about whether NSYNC or Backstreet Boys was the best. But normally mm. like your friend group kind of like the same one. So if you were an NSYNC or Backstreet fan, then you would also discuss who was the hottest and why. And always there was one person that was just like giving the weird one in the group like a chance. <laughs> Team NSYNC, Lance Bass. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. Always Lance Bass. Yeah. Yeah, says a lot. I'm confident <laughs> in my choices. Yeah. <laughs> he w- didn't he go to space? He went to space, right? I think so. Or wasn't he going to go to space? I always forget. Yeah. That. I um, don't know. He's the still the best one. We would play like uh, scary games, which I hated, and Holly loves like light as a feather, stiff mm, as a oh, board. Oh, I love light as a feather, stiff as a board. Yeah, that one was kind of cool, but it used to freak me out because it always worked. <laughs> yeah. You're remarkably strong when there's 15 girls using both their fingers to lift one 80-pound child. Yeah. Or I was always the chubbier one of my group of friends. So if it didn't work, I was just like, oh. Spirits are not with me. I invoked the Nana and she said, nope. Yeah. I'm not fat, guys. The spirits aren't around. 100%. They're they're getting a snack. Um, And there would also be so many good snacks. So either you would bake with your friends or you'd bring some over. I always brought, um, I got, so... Food Network was like a new thing Ooh. for Google searching. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, there wasn't Google, I don't think. I think it was like Ask Jeeves. I don't even remember. But oh there was foodnetwork.com. And I used to mm-hmm. go there for every recipe possible. And my first recipe that I ever made by myself and I brought it to a sleepover Ooh. was um, Auntie Anne's pretzels. Like like a copycat recipe. I loved Auntie Anne's cinnamon sugar pretzels. Mm-hmm. 
So my mom was at work one day. I had the house to myself. I like found all the ingredients Perfect. and I like made yeast, like used the yeast. Oh my like, God, you got in it. there. I got, I got in there. I love it. And uh, yeah, so I used to bring these pretzels like to every sleepover party and then we would like either just have them with butter or cinnamon and sugar, but we'd like decorate them. I love that. It was so good. That's but really yeah. fun. Yeah. So um, my friend Katie was... always made trail mix, which was just like pretty yes. much M&Ms and pretzels. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. The end. And a lot of popcorn. Always popcorn. Yes. And then you would just maybe sleep, maybe not sleep. Yeah. We didn't sleep much. I was a sleeper. And then you'd wake up and you'd get like scrambled eggs and pancakes in the morning. It yep. was so fun. And you were so like, sleep deprived and you just stumble home yeah mm -hmm. but that's yeah that's giving me so much nostalgia sleepovers were fun and these this was um so back to crystal and katie now the harrises are and the searles are family friends so okay. these girls have known each other since like birth this would have been if we're talking about riding out y2k yeah it would have been a safe place it would have mm -hmm. been like you know your mom sending you to very close friends of your family's house right you're totally fine but they were still really excited and having a really fun sleepover time. And here's how um, little sister Mark Searles recalls the night. Quote, December 1999, I was in first grade. My older sister Crystal and I were staying with friends in Del Rio, Texas, waiting for my family in Kansas to move there with us. I was seven and my older sister Crystal was 10. And we were just moving down to Del Rio, Texas to start a new life with our family. I remember my sister as being kind of bossy and the age difference was big. And we just didn't get along very well. We stayed at the Harris family's house, and they had a big family. The oldest son, Sean, then Justin, Lori, and Katie. They lived kind of out in the desert, like there wasn't a lot of people close to them. It was off in the middle of nowhere. I was sleeping directly across the hallway from the room Crystal and Katie were sleeping in. I was going to sleep on the floor next to the bed, but they didn't want me in there, and I was made to leave. Mm, that sounds about right. No little sisters allowed. Mm -hmm. When I couldn't sleep in the room, I was so mad. And I remember I just laid in bed for like two hours, just fuming. I was so mad. I wanted to be in that room, end quote. Now, little did she know that not being in that room saved her life. Right. Ugh. So the girls went to bed. They closed out little sister and talked and giggled for quite a while, much to little sister's consternation. But eventually they fell asleep and the house went quiet. And it would stay that way until approximately 3.50 a.m. And then I will let Crystal take it from here. In the same interview that I was just, just quoting from her sister, Mark, which was with CBS News, Crystal said, quote, We went to bed kind of late, but I remember I woke up to like a scream. I was on the top bunk of the bed. So there was bunk beds in the room. And that puts Katie on the bottom and Crystal on the top. And I just popped my head up a little bit. And I was looking around. I never sat up fully or anything, but the light was on so I could see. I could see the, at the end of the bed, this scary guy. He had scruffy hair, long, dark, curly hair, and a big, scary, long, bushy beard, you know, that just took over his whole face. And then his eyes were just dark and mean. But then I, I saw that Katie had blood on her and that he had a knife in his hand. He had a knife across her throat and his hand on her mouth, and he just cut her throat, and she fell to the ground. Mm -hmm. He still didn't notice that I was in the room, and he was getting ready to leave. He opened the door, almost had the light off, looked one last time, and, and then he saw me looking at him. I was trying to scoot to the right side of the bed because he was on the left, but he just reached over and cut my throat. 
Now, in other interviews, Crystal reveals that after she was discovered, she begged for him to spare her life. She said that she would do whatever he wanted. She would be quiet. She wouldn't tell anything you would say in a situation like that. And while she was doing this, instinctually, she was guarding her neck. She did just watch her friend have her throat slit Mm -hmm. after all. And the man in response to this just looked at her and said, move your hands. Mm. And when she did, he cut her throat. Now, it hurt terribly, but somehow Crystal was still alive. Most of us see like a throat slash as an instant kill. And I mean, we probably have the movies to blame for this because if you cut somebody's throat in the movies, they just fall over and die. This is an an injury we are led to believe you just can't survive. But in reality, it is hard to survive a throat slash, I have found, but it's not impossible. Leslie, do you think you could elaborate on this for us? Maybe share an example or two? Oh, yeah. So it was actually fairly hard to find examples because mm. um, they don't generally happen. But right. Is this a kill stroke? Yeah. Usually if you have your throat slit, you're dead. Now, I will say that for the most part, you don't always die instantly. Mm-hmm. So it does take a little time, but not that much time. So if you are going to survive, it has to be done. You have to get help extremely fast. Okay. So... One of the ones that always comes to mind for me, because I learned about it in college as an athletic trainer, was a hockey player uh, who got his throat cut by a ice skate on the ice. I so he, saw this. Yeah, it is, it is rough. Um, the coverage of it, of the live game, uh, they had the cameras on him. And then once they realized like what was happening, they move it away. So you only get to see so much of it, Ugh. but you do see it. It is unbelievable. Yeah. Um. And a lot of people in the stands got sick from it. I'm sure. I would have passed out. So uh, here's what happened. The hockey player's name was Clint Malarchuk. So during a game between the visiting St. Louis Blues and Malarchuk's Buffalo Sabres on March 22nd, 1989, a player from the Blues and a player from the Sabres crashed hard into the goal creased during play. Um, as they collided, the Blues player's skate blade, that like the blade hit the right side of Malarchuk's neck, severing his carotid artery and Ugh. partially cutting his jugular vein. So I was like, at least it wasn't his own player. That had been mortifying. Oh, <laughs> any of it's awful. Any of it's awful. So with blood gushing out of Malarchuk's neck onto the ice, he was able to leave the ice on his own feet with the assistance of his team's athletic trainer. So I remember him like holding and like trying to skate off. And the athletic trainer, Jim Pizzutelli, was out there, was able to help him. Many spectators were physically sickened by the sight. The excessive amount of blood that Malarchuk lost caused 11 fans to faint, two more to have heart attacks, and three players to vomit on the ice. I I would have been, I would have passed right out. Yeah. 100%. Mm -hmm. Local television cameras covering the game cut away from the sight of Malarchuk's bleeding after noticing what had happened, and Sabre's announcers were audibly shaken. Malarchuk, meanwhile, believed that he was going to die. This part's so sad. All I wanted to do was get off the ice, said Malarchuk. My mother was watching the game on TV, and I didn't want her to see me die. Aware that his mother had been watching the game on TV, he had an equipment manager call and tell her he loved her and then ask for a priest. Oh, my God. Can you even imagine? Malarchuk's life was saved due to quick action by Sabre's athletic trainer, a former U.S. Army combat medic who who served in the Vietnam War. So the athletic trainer had gripped Malarchuk's neck and pinched off the vein, not letting go until doctors arrived to begin stabilizing the wound. 
He led Malarchuk off the ice, then applied extreme pressure by kneeling on his collarbone, a procedure designed to produce a low breathing rate and low metabolic state, which is preferable to extinguination, which is the death by loss of blood. Extinguination? Yeah, sorry. I'm having a hard time talking today. Oh my. As I normally am. Extinguination, right? I just really like that word. Yes, Yes, I do too. Malarchuk was conscious and talking on the way to the hospital and jokingly asked paramedics if they could bring him back in time for third period. So he's like trying to stay somewhat optimistic at this point. The game resumed when league personnel received word that Malarchuk was in stable condition. Malarchuk lost 1.5 liters of blood. It took doctors a total of 300 stitches to close the six inches of a wound, which is 15 centimeters. He was back on the ice in 10 days. 10 days? Mm-hmm. Back on the ice, yeah. too. I mean, I would have been like, no, I... Yeah. I got to... I know. So I wild. Break. This was also 1989. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have heard that before. There's been other players. There was one in 2008, um, Richard Zednick, who also had a similar injury wow. to that. Um, and he was able to make it back. Then there was a case in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. So this one is the, there was just a guy on the side of the road that got, he was attacked. The guy slit his throat, um, was trying to murder him and started to run off. There was a group of people just walking by, a group of tourists in the area that were there. They were there at like the convention center. So they were attending the American Association for Laboratory Animal Science National Meeting at the Kentucky International Convention Center. So everyone in this group had medical training. Oh, my God. What are the (laughs) odds? So they found this guy. They put a lot of pressure on him um, and they had him sit down because they were able to stop the bleeding. They told him that we're able to stop the bleeding. So stay down. You're going to be okay. Then they um, got him to the hospital and they said it was really emotional. I didn't think that I had so many emotions bottled up, one of the women said. But the last picture that they all had in their minds was this man who they thought was going to die. And then they got to see him later that day, like alive and well. Um, But yeah, they were able to get him to the, they just, they were able to pinch off the area. They controlled the breathing. And or sorry, they controlled the blood coming out. They slowed it down Mm -hmm. um, and they made sure that his airway was not blocked and they got him to a surgeon ASAP and they were able to fix him right up. So all of the cases that I saw were you literally had to get to the hospital or to somebody like a surgeon that knew exactly what to do within within this period of time. Right. So first, you would need to stop the blood. Blood contains oxygen. So if you can stop or control the blood flow, that will prolong the victim from losing oxygen to the brain because if the brain shuts off, yeah, you're off. Uh, you can control the blood by applying press it, uh, pressure to the carotid arteries and putting pressure on the wound. If you have anything to wrap it up with, that could help too. I saw one case where the person was able, like wrapped it with saran wrap. Oh, too. wow. I know. It's like crazy. I don't know. I don't know if that's great, but they they didn't have any other it knowledge of like which yeah. they were afraid to like try to um, uh, stop porous. I can see that too. too. It's not going to like pour through mm-hmm. the... They were like, they got it closed again and then just wow. tried to keep it that way. Essentially, you just want to make sure you're not going to do any more damage. Right. 
And this should all be done while like an ambulance is on its way or you're hauling ass to the hospital. Once at the hospital, the doctors will do the same thing. They'll control the bleeding and then they can open an airway or make sure that it's not obstructed. Usually there's like, like they stick that tube right into your trachea. Um, And then help with breathing. Uh, And then during surgery, they would go and fix everything up, transfer blood and saline solution. And hopefully in a couple of weeks or maybe days, the patient will be able to talk and swallow. Wow. Maybe within hours. Wow. Yeah. Pretty crazy. But there really wasn't that many. Um, The cases that I read were few and far between. And some of them were talking more about like if you maybe came across somebody that tried to commit suicide in that form. Yeah. Um, like what you might be able to do. But I would say it's probably hard because if somebody, if you are a victim of like a, I guess a homicidal attack mm-hmm. in the sense, most of the time you're probably not around somebody that can no. save you. No. Everything that I read about surviving getting your throat cut said that it also is like positional. Yeah. Like sometimes you can be very lucky. And I think that may be what happened with Crystal. And you don't, they don't hit a major artery somehow. Mm-hmm. They'll hit, like they hit her trachea, like they hit her windpipe mm-hmm. and they cut part of her vocal cords. Well, not they, this guy mm-hmm. did. But I don't know that they hit like her carotid artery or something. Right. So that could have helped immensely. So yeah, yeah that could have been a big mm-hmm. factor into what like kept her alive. Right. But okay. Oh my God. I can't even imagine. That is so terrifying to me. Yeah. That and the stories where people are like disemboweled and they hold in their intestines. I can't. Mm -hmm. I think I would just, I I can't see my own blood. So I would vomit and pass out immediately. Yeah. I would not do well. I think I would, I'd be okay. I would hold it, get there. Get in there. (laughs) Excellent. Come on, little guys. (laughs) Well, fortunately, unbelievably, or maybe not super unbelievably, Crystal had survived this frequently fatal injury. But her attacker hardly knew that. In the moment, Crystal knew that her only possible means of escaping this whole thing alive was to pretend that she was dead and hope that the man would leave. And so that's what she did. She's so smart. Yeah. God. Bleeding profusely from the front of her neck, Crystal slumped forward, dropped to her knees, and then all the way down where she did not move a muscle. So she played the part. In her interview with CBS News, Crystal goes on to say, quote, and then I just remember laying there and the light turning off. And I heard the door shut. And so I got on my hands and knees and I was crawling across the floor in the bedroom and I came across Katie on the floor. She was kind of making a gasping noise or maybe she was choking. But then I was trying to comfort her. I laid next to her, rubbing her back. And and that's when I realized I couldn't talk because all I wanted to say was, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. But I couldn't. And then, I mean, as soon as she stopped making those noises, I had this feeling, you know, get out of here get up. Come on. Don't lay here. Go. It was dark outside and I was in my pajamas, no shoes, nothing. And I just decided I saw a light in the distance and I was like, that's my goal. That's where I need to be. And I just got on the road and walked really slow to that light. Really, all I could think about was just get to this house, get to this house, get to this house. And I just banged on the door and I hear a gentleman. He's like, who's there? Who's there? You know, but I can't talk. I can't talk. So I'm just banging as hard as I can on the door, and then he opens the door. So Crystal had left the house in a hurry once she thought it would be safe to do so. But authorities would later find out that she did this because she assumed that everyone else in the house must have also been attacked. So they were probably gravely injured or 
worst case scenario, dead. But in reality, everyone else in the home was still asleep in their beds. They hadn't heard the commotion, and the assailant seemed to only be after the two girls. Well, really, it was suspected that he might have only been after Katie, who the room belonged to, and Crystal was just kind of a surprise bonus. Not letting her injuries stop her, though, Crystal put pressure on her neck wounds and walked a quarter mile, a quarter mile, to the nearest neighbor's house. Remember, we said they lived out in the desert in the middle of nowhere, where she banged on the door until they answered. And then, using a pen and paper, Crystal was able to answer a few vital questions. She wrote, the Harrises are hurt and my neck needs help. The neighbors asked her a few things like where she was from, to which she responded, Kansas. And then they asked who did this to her, to which she wrote, this guy. Oh, she doesn't know, right. you know. And then the neighbors called the police, so called the damn cops. And Crystal wrote, tell them to hurry. And then she wrote the most heartbreaking of all statements, quote, will I live? Oh, my God. This whole story is wild. She's 10. What a what a sweet girl. I know. Like from from the beginning of mm-hmm. it. What a sweet, sweet girl. Yep. Oh, this is heartbreaking. So by this time it's 5 30 a.m., right? Because everything went down. It's about four, but the whole event has to take place. She has to like go to the neighbor's house and stuff. The neighbors who had called emergency services, um, you know, got through and they sent ambulances and officers to both the Harris house and to the neighbor's home to get Crystal, right? So the police arrived at the Harris's home and they were met with a tragic scene. Katie Harris was dead. Her bedroom was covered in blood with a trail leading out the doorway and smears of blood all down the hallway where, you know, Mm -hmm. Crystal had struggled to leave. Mark remembers waking up to the sun streaming through the window and a woman she had never met before standing at the foot of her bed. The woman was kind and she handed Mark a pair of shorts and a purple tank top. She told her to put them on because they had to go. As Mark exited the house with this woman, who was likely a police officer, she remembers seeing a lot of blood. There was blood smeared in handprints on the hallway doors, on the hallway walls, sorry, blood right next to her door, blood on the carpet, blood on the front door, blood on the front walkway. But perhaps most disturbing was the heavy stream of blood that was leading from Katie's bedroom. Mark couldn't help but think about how she had begged to stay in there with the big girls and what might have happened to her if she had. Mm. Back at the neighbor's house, the EMTs arrived in an ambulance and brought Crystal to the closest emergency room. But doctors quickly realized that they were not equipped for this type of injury at their small local hospital. Because whereas, you know, they can do surgery, I think you have to be at a place that is equipped for this kind of like extremely sensitive surgery. I don't know that everyone everywhere can do it. Right. I wonder if they, I mean, I would be shocked. I guess like the stuff that I would think they would need, they might have, but they might not have had somebody on staff yeah. that was confident in doing that, That's it. my thought yeah. is that they might not have had a surgeon that could do it. Yeah. So they realized that Crystal would have to be transported, but she was a minor without a parent or guardian in sight and they needed permission to take her, oh which God, to me is just like, take her, just, just take go, her. she's going to die. <laughs> so still trucking along in practical badass fashion, Crystal wrote down her phone number for the doctors and they oh called her mom at home. God. Nothing is stopping her. She's just like, ugh, just trucking along. I can't believe it. By this time, it's 6 a.m. on the first day of a new millennium. And Pam Searles had spent the night before packing up her home in Kansas. I imagine she was sleeping pretty hard, given how how exhausting packing is. Packing is the worst. And the fact that, like, her kids weren't home. She's like, oh, I don't have anything to worry about right now. I can just, like, sleep it out. I feel this. Right? Yeah, same. (laughs) 
But at 6 a.m., she was roused from her slumber by a ringing phone. And on the other end was a person who informed her that they were with the Valverde Emergency Department. Oh, my God. They had her daughter, Crystal, there. Crystal had been attacked and her throat had been cut. They needed permission to life flight her to San Antonio for emergency surgery. Oh, my God. God damn. That's a call you never want or expect, right? No. No. Pam, of course, gave immediate permission. She's like, yeah, go. What? And then she got herself the fuck to San Antonio, Texas in a real hurry. Yeah. When she arrived, uh, doctors informed her that Crystal's prachia had been slashed and her vocal cords were cut a little bit in the process, but they were going to perform surgery to hopefully repair the damage. Pam was devastated by the sight of her little daughter connected to all the tubes with the thing in her neck and the bandages and fighting for her life. But Crystal could only ask, and I assume by writing on paper again, if her friend Katie was okay. Yeah. Pam didn't have the strength to tell her that she wasn't in that moment. And you know what? I don't, I wouldn't have either. Mm -mm. You got to like live. You have surgery to get through. I can't tell you. Yeah, we'll deal with this after. Exactly. That was her exact thought process. But Crystal's journey was far from over. The morning after surgery, which went well, everything was successful, police contacted a forensic artist who happened to be um, in Midland, Texas at the time. And they then got this artist and rushed to Crystal's room with him. They woke her up early in the morning after her like life-saving surgery. And though it was painful, and she really probably shouldn't have been speaking just yet, she insisted on doing it. And she powered through and was able to describe the man who committed the crime against her and her friend well enough for the artist to create a very accurate sketch. This girl is so good. Oh, she keeps going. And sketches are usually awful. Like, police sketches to me almost always look like a child did them. Yeah. But this one looks like, like, when you see the picture of him and you see the sketch, you're like, oh, yeah, that's, that's clearly him. So, Crystal said that it was easy for her to describe him because she could not get the image of this man out of her head. I don't blame her. She said that she felt Katie had been with her that first night and throughout her surgery and that her soul sat beside her and got her through. Oh my God, I'm going to cry. I know. Crystal was eager to get the man who took her best friend and who did this to her. And she stopped at literally nothing to make it happen. Through the sketch, the police were able to put together a photo lineup. And Officer Johnny Allen remembers the event like it was yesterday. He says, quote, we entered Crystal's room and woke her up. I explained to Crystal, I told Crystal, we have a photo lineup And if you see the man that was in that residence that did this to y'all, please put your finger on him. Crystal took the photo lineup and she began. You could see her eyes moving from one individual photograph to the next. And then you could see that she came back and focused in on one photograph. And I was standing beside her when she did this. And Crystal took her right index finger and put it right on the photograph of Tommy Lynn Sells. Mm -hmm. Now they had a suspect, I know. Do not fuck with girl friendships. That's right. We will find you. Yes. We will. <laughs> so. It's so true. Though. It is. It is. Like, don't fuck yes. with our friends, man. So now authorities get um, right, right on this. And as it turns out, Tommy Lynn Sells lives in Del Rio, Texas. Well, there you go. Yeah. So they head back to Del Rio, which is like an hour and a half, two hour drive. And they arrive at his house by 5.30 a.m. the following morning. Because, of course, there's paperwork and search yeah. warrants and that kind of thing to get. They knock on his front door, and shockingly, he doesn't answer. Oh. Oh, what a surprise. I thought he'd be like, cool, police, come on in. Yeah. But he had left the door unlocked. And so the police entered his home and saw him standing in the doorway, just waiting for them to come in, basically. When placed under arrest, Tommy Lynn simply said, I'm glad I finally got caught. 
I was tired of doing this. Ugh, gross. Tommy Lynn Sells told detectives where they would find the murder weapon from the Harris Searles attack, as he had simply tossed it into his backyard, and it was still there. And they found it, an 11-inch butcher knife with a thin blade that had been bent at an angle from extreme use. Mm. The police then called Pam, Crystal's mom, to let her know that they had made the arrest. At the time, she was sitting right next to Crystal, who did, as I said, go on to completely recover. But if you think she was done being a superhero, think again. Nine months later, she testified in Tommy Lynn's trial and said, quote, I felt fine to know that I had to eventually see him again because I felt like he couldn't conquer me, you know? He had his chance and he obviously, you know, didn't do what he wanted. And, and now look at him. He was going to be in that trial room because of me. And I liked feeling that power. I had such a mindset that this is what I wanted to do. Um, and this is what I had to do. I put my thoughts towards Katie. Like, this is for Katie. This. She deserves this. Oh. I can't. I love that. Ugh. Holy she's Hannah. So, she's so strong. I just, yeah. I love her. And you should not mess with little girls ever. No. They are the strongest of all creatures. Mm-hmm. And in a recent interview, Crystal told reporters that she never thinks of Tommy Lynn Sells because she would not give him the satisfaction. Good. She is such a fucking badass. And yes. Okay, so like, back to the case, but I just really needed to give Crystal her due praise because I admire her so much. Mm -hmm. And you know, I don't always gush about people. I don't do this all the yeah. time. But when I do, you know that I mean it. Yes. And I really mean it on this one. After his arrest, Tommy Lynn Sells began to sing like the filthy little canary he was. Ugh. Police were stunned at his willingness to comply. He first walked them through Katie's murder and Crystal's attack, saying that he walked the perimeter of the house and found an open window where he was able to slip in. Because remember, he doesn't break into houses. Mm -hmm. The places he gets in, he can just get into. Then he said, quote, Then I came over here. There was a little girl sleeping here. And I stood here for a minute. Then I looked in here. There were two girls sleeping in here. I think he's like in the house at the time. And then he explained the layout of the room and the positions of the two sleeping girls. Then he tells the officers that he went to the bottom bunk where Katie was and says, quote, I cut off her bra and I cut the side of her and he motions to be cutting her underwear, whatever she was wearing. Then I stabbed her here and she jumped back. Then I motions to slicing a throat, like makes the cut your throat motion. Mm -hmm. Then I walked over here and he goes over to the top bunk and I went like this where he demonstrates slashing Crystal's neck. So he like took them through the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Officer Johnny Allen commented, quote, we feel like the motive in this murder and the attack on Crystal was sexual assault. We did find out that Tommy Lynn Sells was associated and his friends with the Harris family. And we feel like he specifically targeted Katie. And as opposed to what they originally thought, he did know that Crystal was there. He just thought she hadn't woken up until he saw her eyes. Mm -hmm. Tommy Lynn also told officers that he had thought about killing everyone in the house, but decided against it and left. So full confession, blammo, right? Okay. In Texas, everyone knows that's a death row sentence. You're done. Mm -hmm. You're in Texas yeah. and you just confessed to killing a child. You're mm -hmm. done. And because he didn't have anything to lose at this point, Tommy Lynn just kept talking. Okay. Texas police believe that he was responsible for the deaths of at least 22 other people. Mm. But they also believe that Tommy Lynn didn't always tell the truth and tried to work the system by confessing to crimes he didn't commit to possibly get himself off of death row or gain attention or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, confession killers are a thing. We haven't covered 
the concession killers yet, but eventually we will. We know Ted Bundy slowly fed authorities details in exchange for more days on the end of his life. It happens. But Tommy Lynn Sells never managed to get himself that pardon. Among the crimes Tommy Lynn confessed to was the 1987 murder of the Dardeen family. Oh. hmm And this would prove to be his most scandalous action. It would seem that this crime was exactly his style, right? An open door he walked into using a weapon from the home. The crime is incredibly violent. There's no reason for it happening. He's just like random chaos. He didn't steal anything. But Tommy Lynn was not consistent in his story and over the years managed to change the facts a few times. But I will die on the hill that truth tellers um, don't remember details as well as liars do. Right. So first, Tommy Lynn told the police he had met Keith at a truck stop where Keith um, invited him back to his house to have dinner with him and his wife and then have a little three-way. Mm-hmm. Okay. But later, Tommy Lynn would say that it wasn't a truck stop. It was a pool hall. In some versions of the story, he was mad that Keith wouldn't go through with said three-way. And in some, he was mad that he had ever asked for it in the first place. But either way, Tommy Lynn went back to the trailer, according to him, and killed the Dardines in a horrific and brutal fashion, saving Keith for last, making sure to also humiliate and emasculate him when he was done. But when pressed for details, Tommy Lynn didn't have a whole lot of them, given it was more than 10 years before his arrest. So this happened 10 years before he's talking to the police. I feel like, yeah, some of the photographic details of the event might be a little blurry. There were things like, he couldn't tell the police the exact position he had left Elaine in. This is not to mention that it was also completely out of character for Keith, the ever-vigilant father with huge safety concerns, to invite a stranger into his home. Right. Not Remember um, from the previous episode, he had a like young girl come to his door asking for mm-hmm. use of his phone. And he wouldn't even let her in. Right, right. So it was very strange to everyone who heard this that he would just invite this weird guy into his house. Mm-hmm. Detectives on the Dardeen case were rightfully suspicious. I mean, they had never even heard of Tommy Lynn Sells, let alone consider him to be a possible suspect. But the one thing that caught their attention was a set of watermelon plates. Mm-hmm. Remember I mentioned that last week in my yeah. first line? Tommy Lynn mentioned seeing ceramic watermelon plates in the Dardeen's trailer. It was one detail that he did have. And that was dead on. This was a detail that no one had mentioned in the news. It wasn't included in any newspaper photos or any reports. But Tommy Lynn knew that they were there. And there was no way for him to have that information unless he had been in the Dardeen's trailer. Mm -hmm. This was enough for Sheriff Roger Mulch, who said, quote, in our minds, we have enough confidence to believe he did it. But it was not enough for the court and Tommy Lynn was never convicted of the Dardeen family murders. The surviving member of Keith and Elaine's family remain uncertain that Tommy Lynn was the person to blame for their loved one's death. To which, in 2010, Tommy Lynn said, quote, I know people got their doubts. They say there's no physical evidence tying me to the Dardines, but there wasn't for any of them because they wasn't looking for me. I moved. I was always a transient. And this is true. He was. Tommy Lynn has also been linked to several other famous cases. The May 1987 murder of Suzanne Kortz. Um, She disappeared on February 7th, 1960 and was presumed dead in New York. He was also linked to the 1989 murder of one of his co-workers in Texas. The October 15th, 1997 murder of Stephanie Mahaney near Springfield, Missouri. The April 18th, 1999 murder of nine-year-old Beatrice Perez in San Antonio, Texas, and this was a crime he was actually convicted of. Mm. 
the May 23rd, 1999 sexual assault and murder of Haley McCone in Lexington, Kentucky, and the October 13th, 1997 murder of 10-year-old Joel Kirkpatrick in Lawrenceville, Illinois. Okay. And that brings us back to Diane Fanning. Mm. Diane sent her letter off to Tommy Lynn. It was sparse on the details, but spoke of the 1997 murder of a little boy. And she was hoping to have him shed some light on what kind of person they might be looking for, as she believed um, that this little boy's mother, who was convicted of the crime, was innocent. Surprisingly, or maybe not so, in subsequent conversations with Diane, Tommy Lynn confessed that he himself had been the killer in this crime. Hmm. Which is funny because at first, Diane didn't think it actually was him. She thought that's too much of a coincidence. But she thought she could have like a Silence of the Lambs moment with him where she's like, well, what was this guy like? Maybe you can tell us what we Mm -hmm. should be looking for. It's also always better to go into those kind of things where you aren't already suspecting somebody. It allows you to like really see it. So they're not as defensive too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's very smart. But Tommy Lynn had details about this one. It didn't always matter though. As Mm -hmm. we see, he was not convicted of other crimes he had details about. But Diane was too smart to think that the prosecutors in this case were going to believe her. And they had already proven that they were committed to putting Julie away for life, uh, even though forensic evidence was incredibly slim and her verdict had rested on little more than a hunch. So instead of contacting them, Diane went to the press and printed Joel's story in her book. Oh, clever girl. This caught the attention of a man named Bill Clutter who was an investigator for the Innocence Project of Downstate, Illinois, and had been investigating Julie Ray's claim of innocence. Bill Clutter was able to find people who could confirm Tommy Lynn's presence in and near Lawrenceville on the weekend that Joel died. And there's more. Okay. I told you I was going to get to this stuff with the police, and here it is. Yeah. According to the University of Illinois, quote, the media coverage from the Prisoner Review Board hearing prompted the former mayor of Lawrenceville and the former chief of police to contact the Innocence Project with evidence suggesting that a Lawrence County Sheriff deputy testified falsely at Julie's first trial, providing false evidence which contributed to her conviction. The deputy, who was the first on the scene, made no report about searching the backyard for footprints on an intruder. Remember he said he went there and looked and Mm -hmm. there was nothing? However, at trial, Deputy Dennis York testified that before entering the house, he shined his flashlight down on the wet, dew-covered grass and could find no evidence of a perpetrator's footprints in the backyard where Julie described the intruder striking her to the ground and calmly walking away. York testified, quote, I shined the yard with my light. It was heavy dew. I see no fresh track in the yard. However, this testimony is contradicted by a neighbor who walked the same area in his bare feet and said the grass was dry. After Julie was convicted, her new husband, Mark Harper, so her name is now Julie Ray Harper, by the way, contacted a meteorologist who reviewed weather records from that morning. And this expert concluded that there would have been no dew on the ground that morning. Hmm. Key evidence was discovered by UIS that was never provided uh, to Julie's defense attorney by prosecutors. This withheld evidence was an audio-taped interview of Deputy York that was conducted on the morning of the crime by the Lawrenceville Police Chief David White. The audio interview contradicted York's trial testimony by stating that he went immediately inside the house and never mentioned searching the backyard for footprints in the dew. But the audio tape was never provided to the defense during Julie's first trial. Mm. Yet, his testimony was used by prosecutors as evidence that there was no intruder. Oh, my goodness. I told you these people were crooked. There you go. 
<sighs> you do or you don't. Mm -hmm. And I can't ignore the fact that they had also spoken to her ex-husband, who was also a police officer. Right, right. We were like, mm hot -hmm. about this. And he thought Julie had killed his son and he made no bones about really putting her on the line for it. Yeah. And that fact, the fact that um, Julie's ex-husband was a cop, is left out of every article. Yeah. It's not in I any know, retellings. that's wild that you found that. And it's it's there in interviews with him, but it's really casually mentioned. And the main articles about Julie Ray Harper and her son, they don't include that. Yeah. I don't think that's an accident. Yeah. Sorry. Wild. This, however, was enough to grant Julie a retrial. Okay. And at this time, she was found not guilty. Great. Julie Ray Harper was acquitted and released from prison on July 26, 2006. She will not suffer the details of what she went through during her time in prison, though. But it wasn't easy for her. Oh, my goodness. Prisoners do not take kindly to a mother who oh, murdered their child true. for revenge. Oh, so she was, so like, sad. tortured while she was in jail. Oh. Yeah, it's awful. And she was, like, on her path to be have a PhD. Exactly. Oh, God. And she hadn't done a thing. But what of Tommy Lincells? He was only ever convicted of the murder of Katie Harris. But that was enough for Texas to give him the death penalty. And in Texas, the extradition of death row inmates is forbidden. So he couldn't be taken to any other states to face penalties for his confessed crimes there. Though in the end, I suppose it didn't matter. Mm. On January 3rd, 2014, a Del Rio, Texas judge set Tommy Lynn's execution date for April 3rd, 2014. His death sentence was carried out at the Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville. And when asked if he would like to make a final statement, Tommy Lynn Sells simply said, no. As a lethal dose of phenobarbital was administered, he took a few deep breaths, closed his eyes, and began to snore. Less than a minute later, he stopped moving. He seemed pretty happy to be rid of himself. Mm. 13 minutes later, at 6.27 p.m., he was pronounced dead. Crystal Searles and members of both the Harris and Perez families attended the execution. Oh, wow. Okay. But why? I can hear you all asking. And I warned you in the first half of this one that I can't really answer that. When asked by detectives, doctors, and psychologists alike why he did those things, Tommy Lynn spilled out the long and disturbing story of his childhood, which I'm only going to give you the wiki roundup on because we never really know when he's telling the truth. Yeah. Twins. That's right, twins. Okay. Tommy Lynn and Tammy Jean Sells were born in Oakland, California on June 28, 1964. They were two of, a of five children, two single mother, Nora. Uh, when they were 18 months old, Tommy and Tammy contracted meningitis. Tommy survived, but Tammy did not. Shortly thereafter... Tommy Lynn was sent to live with his aunt Bonnie Walpole in Holcomb, Missouri. However, when he was five years old, he was returned to his mother because his mother found out that his aunt wanted to formally adopt him and she didn't like that at all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tommy Lynn also claims that when he was eight, he began spending time with a man named Willis Clark, That's who, vicious, <laughs> who viciously molested him with the consent of his mother. Oh, God. So his mom turned him over to yeah. this guy to do terrible things to him. Tommy Lynn stated that this abuse affected him greatly and that he would relive his experiences over and over again when committing his crimes. Mm. I wonder if his mother got, like, money for that. I feel like maybe. Either that or this was, like, her boyfriend that she was just, like, yeah. liked the man more than the kid, you mm -hmm. know? But however it went down, apparently she was part of it. She was right. okay with it. Tommy Lynn also continually cites the, cite, cited the following incident in, like, his, what led him down the path of murder, I guess. In July of 1985, when he was 21, Tommy Lynn worked at a Forsyth, Missouri carnival where he met 28-year-old Ina Court and her four-year-old son, Rory. Ina invited Tommy Lynn to her home that evening, and according to him, they had sex, 
They fell asleep, and then Tommy Lynn woke up to find her stealing from his backpack. So then he beat her and her son to death with a baseball bat, of course. Yeah, that makes sense. Right, right, right. You know, her son was a potential witness, and she was a terrible stealer. The bludgeoned bodies were found three days later, by which time Tommy Lynn Sells had left town. He also tells a, a fantastic tale about how he one time walked into a house in an attempted home invasion, and he saw a man molesting a little boy. And so he killed the man, but then also the little boy. He has a lot of stories. I don't know which one we are to believe. I'm sure something awful did happen to him because mm-hmm. I don't want to believe that a person can just be that from the jump, but you never know. Right. And some people might be wondering if the meningitis he had as a child could have caused some faulty wiring in Tommy Lynn's brain. And that's possible. Persistent effects of meningitis can include fatigue, difficulty concentrating, headaches, depression, photophobia, which is like light hurts mm-hmm. your eyes, dizziness and impaired balance and coordination, behavioral learning, memory, or intellectual deficits. But she'll notice that none of them include psychosis or homicidal rage. Right. But maybe that on top of being molested and not trusting his mother and also maybe being denied a safer household with his aunt. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thousands of things. Yeah. In the end, I don't think we'll ever really know. Well, I mean, we can say why he could have been an angry man. We can say why he could have been looking to take out his experiences on other people. But we can't say why he did the actual crimes yeah. that he did. Though evidence would lead us to believe the worst of all possible answers, and that is, he just liked it. Ugh. Yeah. Tommy Lincells was a tornado of anger and violence. He once said of himself, quote, I am hatred. When you look at me, you look at hate. I don't know what love is. Two words I don't like to use are love and sorry, because I'm about hate. Okay. And that's all there is. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But he did. <sighs> All right. So toast. Toast. Ugh. To crystals. Crystals. Yes. To crystals. Hell yes. Ooh. Uh, and to, God, did we, we didn't do a toast last week. So to the Dardines and Fabian Witherspoon and um, Julie Ray Harper mm-hmm. and to, um, to Diane Fanning. Diane Fanning. For her excellent work. God. There are a lot of people that suffered in this situation, but there's also a lot of like truly unbelievable, I don't know, stories of survival and spirit. Mm -hmm. So, and fucking women saving other women. I know. This is such a good like feminist tale. It it does have those (laughs) moments. Absolutely. (laughs) All right, then. I think that we can close the book on Tommy Lynn Sells. Okay. And if we were caught in the path of an oncoming tornado, we we would would be be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at WouldBeDeadPod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Do not fuck with girl friendships. That's right. We will find you. Yes. We will.